Ephesians 4, verse 17. This is God's holy word. He gives it to his people for our good. Let us give our attention to its reading. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And also let us remind ourselves of the, the catechism lesson from Lord's Day 3. Lord's Day 3, questions 6 through 8, page 10 of the back of the Psalter hymnal. Let's read the answers together for questions 6 through 8. Beloved, did God create man so wicked and perverse? No, God created man good and in his own image, that is, in true righteousness and holiness so that he might truly know God, his creator, love him with all his heart, and live with him in eternal happiness for his praise and glory. Then where does man's corrupt nature come from? From the fall and disobedience of our first parents, Adam and Eve, in paradise. This fall has so poisoned our nature that we are born sinners, corrupt from conception on. But are we so corrupt that we are totally unable to do any good and inclined toward all evil? Yes, unless we are born again by the Spirit of God. Let us go to God once more in prayer. Most great God, we come and quiet our hearts before you and before your word. What we know not, teach us. What we have not, give us. 
and what we are not make us. For your son's sake, amen. Dear congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus says that he has come not to help the healthy, but to help the sick. It is not the healthy who need a doctor, he says, but it is the sick. And sometimes when uh, we have a sickness or we, we sense that something's wrong, it, it's, it's just little things here and there perhaps. But then every once in a while you get one of those sicknesses where you are completely knocked out. There is just no question that you are really, truly sick. And you ever have in those moments that, that feeling or that wish that you could just feel healthy again, even for a couple moments, just to say, I wish I felt that my normal strength and my normal energy, and boy, I, I really took it for granted. But if I'm ever healthy again, oftentimes we convince ourselves we never will be when we're that sick. If I'm ever healthy again, I'm not going to take for granted my health and my strength and my energy. And then, of course, you, you feel healthy again, and it's quite an amazing feeling for the first couple of, of days. The experience of feeling healthy is, is so striking because of what you have come through. Because you have fresh in your mind the realities of, of that sickness. And when we understand something of the reality of the sickness of our sin and our misery, it makes us more grateful for the spiritual health that we have in Jesus Christ. It makes us more determined uh, to keep up with that health that we have in, in Jesus Christ. And uh, it, it makes us yearn for the day when we will be fully and finally set free from the presence of sin completely. So as we consider these things uh, tonight, we look at the new life that we have in Jesus Christ and through Jesus Christ as it relates to our catechism lesson and in Ephesians 4. Uh, we won't unpack everything in this passage, but, but certain things that help us understand these truths uh, from God's word. So first we see the totality of corruption. The totality of corruption. Secondly, we, we see the corrupt corruption and the image of God and how those two relate. And then finally, the image restored in, in Jesus Christ. So first, the, the totality of corruption. The beginning of our passage in Ephesians 4, Paul really sets forward for us a, a picture of complete and total rebellion, sinfulness, alienation from God, and, as we said, corruption. We, we see it going to all of the faculties of the soul, mind, and affections, and will. He begins by setting forth for us, under the inspiration of the Spirit, that our minds have been corrupted by sin. This is the reality of what happens for the fallen human race, as we read in Genesis chapter 3. That, that's the beginning of all of this. From that point on, this is what might have been said about the human race in totality, apart from God and apart from his grace and the work of the Holy Spirit in regeneration. So our minds are, are full of lies and corruption. In our passage before us, there is the futility of their minds. Here Paul is using Gentiles as those 
still separated from God, using that covenantal language to remind us that if we know God in Jesus Christ, we are grafted on to the covenants of promise, the tree of God's uh, redemptive historical working. But these Gentiles have a futility in their minds. This word most often means vanity or emptiness. What they know or what they think they know, those cut off from the life of God, cut off from his covenantal blessing, cut off from the spiritual life found only in Christ and through the gospel, what they know or what they think they know does not grant them life because it is a false knowledge. The only way we we truly know things in this world that are true and enduring and lead to blessedness is in Jesus Christ. So all of those cut off from the life of God here have this futility in their minds, led about by an ultimate sin that leads them away from their greatest and ultimate purpose, which is the glory of God in Jesus Christ. If anyone is not living for the glory of God in Jesus Christ, then they are living according to a central and ultimate lie. He says not only this, but that they are darkened in their understanding. And you see how these descriptions sort of cascade one upon the other to show us the totality of corruption. These people are under a a sphere of darkness. They are in darkness itself as being those cut off from God. Described as those who have ignorance, a lack, not only a lack of knowledge, but specifically a lack of truth. As we said before, if your knowledge doesn't add up to your obeying and following and trusting Christ, then your knowledge adds up to no ultimate good. It is vain and can be described as as ignorant. So cut off from the life of God, cut off from the life of Christ because of sinfulness, the mind is corrupted. That also feeds into hearts that are set on sin. You see the the mind, the the head and the heart working hand in hand from the mind to the affections and then finally to the will. These people that Paul is describing under the inspiration of the Spirit are described as having a hardness of heart. Hardness of heart is obstinacy. It prevents something from from, from functioning, shutting yourself off and just saying, no chance, I'm not giving myself to this. But this would prevent someone from functioning according to their chief purpose, as we said. Why did God create man? He created man for his own glory, that he might know him and love him, that man might know and love God and and live with him. It's uh, an obstinacy that we often see in the life of Jesus Christ. The Pharisees, the teachers of the law, they had such a hardness of heart against Jesus that anything he did was only further reason that they wanted to seek the end of his life. They wanted to find a way to undercut or undermine his work. Mark, in chapter 3, we see this hardness of heart. Jesus said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? They were silent. He looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. 
The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. What's Mark emphasizing there in that account? He's he's emphasizing that as they see the glory of Jesus Christ, the love and the compassion and the healing power of Jesus. He says, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath? Let me show you what the Sabbath is, is here for, to do good. And he heals this man. And Mark, one of Mark's favorite words is immediately, Greek word euthus, right? immediately, 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 if you read the gospel. Immediately they go out and they say, how can we destroy him? No meditating on the wonderful works of Christ. No, no seeing what Jesus might be teaching them. Right? That's, that's a hardness of heart. And that is what's present in those who are cut off from the life of God. That's the truth of sin and sinfulness apart from uh, regeneration in the gospel. They're hard in, in heart. They are, they're callous as we read. They are corrupt through deceitful desires. What? What are deceitful desires? Well, when our heart is set on something that is itself sinful, and we have this desire in our hearts to act on that very thing, then our hearts are leading us astray, aren't they? This is the way that sin works. It it takes root in the heart and, and gives birth to a desire that then grows and grows such that we become weaker and weaker and more unable to say no when something is presented to us. So the mind is corrupted, the heart is corrupted, and then the life becomes full of, of sinful actions. So be the will is then pointed towards all of these sinful things. Uh, what hope does a sinner have when the mind is futile and darkened, when the heart, the affections are set on things that in themselves are sinful, that is a, that's a city without walls, isn't it? And that's the way that the enemy tries to work in us. We have spiritual life in Jesus Christ and, and, and we are forgiven and yet because of the reality of indwelling sin, this is the way that the enemy still tries to work in us by making appeals to our minds and our affections and allowing desires for things to grow such that we become weaker and weaker in our ability to say no to something that is presented to us. But in a more uh, stark description here in uh, what we see in Ephesians 4, they have given themselves up to sensuality. This is the will following the corrupted heart and the deceitful desires. What is sensuality? Sensuality is living according to the supposed happiness that you would achieve by appeasing your senses. What looks good, what tastes good, what feels good must ultimately be good. That's sensuality, and that's different than the life that Scripture gives to us. Some people would say that that is is freedom. You see, in our world, there's a lot of sensuality, isn't there? Following your desires, doing what feels good, doing what looks good. And a lot of people would say that's freedom, the opportunity to do whatever you would want to do. But that's really enslavement when you, when you think about it as a, as a whole picture of the human being. It's enslavement because whatever the affections are set on, you must follow it. 
and indeed you are enslaved to these passions and, and desires. There's quite a picture there, isn't there, in our passage where uh, they become those cut off from the life of God, those not redeemed from the fall. What are they? They are greedy to practice every kind of impurity. We have come face to face, our world has come face to face with a, an evil autocrat who wants to, to grab more land for himself and hopefully we, find, we see an end to it soon. But in human history, what you generally have seen is that uh, those who are greedy for more land, does it ever stop at the first land grab that they make? No. They always want more. They always need more. And uh, the heart that is completely bent on sin, the heart apart from God's grace, becomes greedy to practice every kind of impurity. It's a vivid picture of continual lust for any kind of sin. And this seems to be more of a, of a description of humanity in general. It's not saying that each and every person who does not know God in Jesus Christ has a greed and a lust for every kind of sin out there. But rather, that as we consider humanity in general, and as we look at the world, there's no way that we could deny that, generally speaking, the human race has a greed and a lust for every kind of impurity. It's all out there. And there's nothing new under the sun. And so, this comes then to its pinnacle in its description. They're alienated from the life of God. And what does it mean to be alienated from the life of God? It's to live in spiritual barrenness, in a spiritual desert. We might, you might say to somebody who does not know Christ, who, who is not saved, and you might say, you're alienated from the life of God, and that might not mean much to them. But to us, that has to mean everything. Right? To be fellowshipping with God, to be in communion with God in Jesus Christ, that needs to be everything for us. So when you put all of these descriptors together that Paul has for us, describing what it's like, how to describe sinfulness apart from God's saving grace, we find that, that uh, you know, as you put all of those things together, where does the responsibility lie? Who is to be blamed for this? And we find that man himself is to be blamed for all of these things. We have wandered astray from God. We have, we have cut ourselves off from his glory and from his goodness and from righteousness and holiness. And so one of the, one of the conclusions from this first part of, of the passage is that God is not the author of sin. We, we affirm, as Reformed Christians, we affirm a sovereign God. We affirm a God who has decreed all things. And yet, is God the author of sin? No, he is not. The best that we can do with much of this is affirm what we know and admit that we don't fully understand it. So, one of the great concise statements of this is in chapter 3 of our confession on God's decree, and it says this, God has from all eternity, by the most holy and wise counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably ordained whatsoever comes to pass. He has decreed it all. There's, there's nothing that happens in the universe that is outside of God's decree. Yet, neither is God the author of sin, nor is violence offered to the will of the creature. 
nor is the liberty of second causes taken away, but rather established. You just, there are some times where we just have to state what we believe and, and say, we understand there's mystery behind this and we, we don't fully grasp everything about it, but we know it is true. And so God is not the author of sin, and, that, and we're, that, that is affirmed for us here in this passage where we see that man himself is responsible for the corruption that is there in his life. And then, of course, the second conclusion is this corruption is total. It touches the mind, the affections, the will. All of these, apart from God's grace, are in defect mode. They need to be recalled. They need a change. They need God's grace. And to be honest with all of these things, what does it mean? It means that nothing, absolutely nothing that we do, can be righteous in God's sight. Anything that comes from us uh, without the help of God's grace is not righteous in God's sight. For how does God examine for righteousness? Is it external obedience? If there is a day where you do not externally break the seventh commandment, have you been totally obedient to the seventh commandment in every facet of your life? No. Obedience before God goes right down to the core of who you are. It reaches down into the depths of your heart. God looks upon the heart, doesn't he? And so this helps us to see something of the depth of our sin. Knowing these things and thinking about these things and thinking about the depth of corruption as those cut off from the life of God, what is it, what is it like? It's like when you get the flu once every year, once every two years. And you're reminded, boy, that was nice when I was healthy. But apart from God and Jesus Christ, this is who we are. The mind, the affections, the will, in defect mode. You see the kinds of prayers in the history of the church that have to do with sin and the conviction of sin. It reflects these very principles. So there's one Puritan prayer that says this, save me from myself from the trickery and deceits of sin, from the treachery of my perverse nature, from denying your charge against my offenses, from a, con- from a life of continual rebellion against you, from wrong principles, views, and aims, for I know that all my thoughts, affections, desires, and pursuits are alienated from you. What is one of the things that we do in prayer? We come to God and we lay bare our own defective sinfulness, the way in which we need to be reprogrammed. We need God's grace. This allows us then to, to think about what, what the image of God is. We see in, in, in the passage, the image of God is referenced and then also in, in the catechism lesson. What is the image of God? Well, the image of God is, is the way God has created us which allows us to know and love and live with and for God. It's the eternality of the soul, it's the the faculties of the soul, it's the ability to know God, it's the ability to obey him and glorify him as he has made us to. Man has a soul, man is a rational creature, man was created for fellowship with God in holiness and service unto eternity, and then man was created to rule as God's vice king over his creation. So the image of God is spiritual, it's moral, it's covenantal, 
And it's what allows us basically to know God and to live for him and to live with him. We also see that language in the New Testament around the idea of image usually has to do then with how Christ restores the image of God in us. So we see the the language of knowledge and and righteousness and holiness. This is how we were created. We were created upright in knowledge and righteousness and holiness. The confession says this, after God had made all other creatures, he created man, male and female, with reasonable and immortal souls, endued with knowledge, righteousness, and true holiness after his own image. That is how we were made. But sin cuts us off from that. We do not. We are not born, born and conceived in sin. We are not upright in knowledge and righteousness and holiness. In our minds, we commit adultery, er, uh, idolatry. In our hearts, we have our affections set on things which are themselves sinful. In our lives, we are oriented towards sin itself. But Ephesians 4 says that in Christ, all of these things are restored. We learn Christ, it says in Ephesians 4. We are taught the truth that is in him. We are renewed in the spirit of our minds, which is knowledge, and we put on the new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. In Christ, the image is restored. Jesus Christ is the new self. That's what we have to begin to understand. Ursinus, in his uh, commentary on the Heidelberg Catechism, says, God the Father restores the image through the Son because he has made him unto us wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. The Son, through the Holy Spirit, changes us into the same image from glory unto glory as by the Spirit of the Lord. And the Holy Ghost carries forward and completes what is begun by the Word and the use of the sacraments. What does it mean to to know or to learn Christ? Paul describes this sinfulness and he says, that is not the way that you learned Christ. What does it mean to to learn or to, to know Christ? It means to know the ugliness of sin and the necessity of seeking righteousness in him. For those who know Jesus Christ, when you have that life of sinfulness set before you, the futility of the mind, living in darkness, the ignorance that is in them, and then their hearts set on deceitful desires, and their lives filled with sin, he says, that is not the way that you learned Christ. So to learn Christ and to to know Christ is that sin becomes unacceptable to us because we understand the work of Christ. We understand the price of He paid to free us from sin. We understand the life that Christ gives to the believer in order to fill us with righteousness and holiness. In Christ, we are being freed from sin's power and we are being made more like him. So a couple of passages in the New Testament. 2 Corinthians 3. We all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Colossians 3 says that we put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and the new has come. I want to think just for a minute about that passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. We all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image. What does that mean? What does it mean to behold the glory of the Lord? 
What does it mean to see the glory of Jesus Christ? It means to become familiar with his works. It means to have the glory of the gospel set before us and the eyes of our hearts, the believer, we look at what Jesus has done for us and our minds and our hearts are filled with this glorious vision of the Savior. It's not seeing his physical appearance in our minds. It's seeing the wonder of what he has done for us and having our hearts filled with love for him and that is how we desire to become more like Jesus. That's how God does it, by working down into our hearts and our affections of what it means to become more like him. So just one conclusion that I'd like to tease out and then we'll, we'll make a couple of quick applications and then we'll be done. The conclusion that we make from this is that it's only in union with Jesus Christ by faith that you can be truly human, that you can be what God has intended us to be. And how are we united to Christ? We must, we must be united to Jesus by faith. We must come to him, as we spoke this morning, the need, in the needfulness of our hearts, in humility about our sin, and confidence with who he is. Trying to improve yourself morally apart from the grace of God is never going to be of any worth spiritually. There are some people who live well-ordered lives who do not profess Christ, and that's not what we're saying, but anything that is truly good in the sight of God has to be given by his grace, for his grace comes down into the depths of who we are, he makes us new in Jesus Christ, and then he allows us to live for him. Otherwise, we're down in the depths of our sickness and sin and misery. So we do not pursue obedience before God outside of faith in Jesus Christ. The entire Christian life needs to be lived by faith, trusting in the Savior and trusting that by God's grace, what is he doing? Transforming us into the image of Christ, making us healthy again. So we are renewed people then for the glory of God. Ursinus has just a couple of suggestions at the end of his, uh, his section here on Lord's Day 3, and I'll share a couple of them with you. He says, first, we need to begin to see the difference between our original blessedness and our misery. Understand how God created us to be, upright in knowledge and righteousness and holiness, and see the effects of sin and how gross and terrible and awful our sin and sinfulness are. We ought to mourn the sin and misery of our race and the things into which we have brought ourselves. We ought to think about the fact that we were made to serve God in body, mind, and soul, and now we are rebellious throughout all of these faculties, the mind, futile, the affections set on sinful things, the will oriented towards sin. You look at your own life, hopefully it's not hard for you to see sin and sinfulness. You look at the world and the many challenges of the world and uh, the many ugly things about our race and certainly you have plenty there to, to be convinced of these things. Also, he encourages us to see the benefits we have received in Christ. As you know something of your sin and misery, and then the benefits which you receive in Christ, what does it make you do? It makes your heart just redound with joy and gratitude. 
Richard Sibbs says, think what great love Christ has showed unto us and how little we have deserved and this will make our hearts melt and be as pliable as wax before the sun. He's saying very simply, think about how little you deserve what Jesus has done for you. Think about how little you deserve it and if you begin to grasp that, you become like wax before the sun and God will mold you into one of his children, showing his glory in all things. We must earnestly desire the restoration of what has been lost. If God has created us to be a certain way and sin prevents us from doing that and then God reestablishes us in Christ and says, in and by my grace, I will allow you to live a life that is pleasing unto me, then we ought to say, I desire that more and more. I desire that that image would be restored in me more and more because I'm living the way that my God desires for me to live. And then, of course, very simply, we must be thankful to God for this restoration, thankful for what he has done. So because of the fall, we are corrupted. There's never, there was never any defect in God's creating us. That's not where the flaw was. That's not where the fault lies. It lies with us. And yet, nevertheless, he saves us and establishes us by his grace, causes us to stand and renews us in the image of Christ in knowledge and righteousness and holiness. And we don't have time to look at it, but at the end of Ephesians 4, what is the righteous life that we're called to? It's basically peace with our brothers and sisters. Forgive Speak in a certain way. Put away anger. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Let the peace of Christ rule in the way that you love each other. May it be a picture of the grace that I have placed upon your life. And so may it be said of us, brothers and sisters, that the way God has acted towards us, we seek to act that way towards one another. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for your word, your truth, and your grace. We thank you for another day in the courts of the Lord. We thank you that here in worship we have a glorious and heavenly uh, truth and presence of Christ. And he says, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am. And so we thank you, great God and Father. We praise you, Lord Jesus. We worship you, Holy Spirit. And we ask uh, that you would make these scriptures real and true uh, to our hearts, that we might be transformed more and more into the image of Christ, into knowledge and righteousness and holiness. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.